subject that you can go and delve deep in. I have libraries full of desks of books on this topics. But two that come to mind are that are standing on the topic. One is by Billy Graham, The Holy Spirit. I would start with that book. All right, that's an outstanding volume. Then if you want to get a book that is a what I would call a deeper theological study into the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, written by a Presbyterian. Reformed theologian. He gets it. He really gets it. Uh, and he now teaches at a Baptist seminary. It's R.D.A. Carson. C-A-R-S-O-N. Showing the Spirit. Showing the Spirit. A theological exposition of 1 Corinthians 12, 14. This is a tremendous book. In fact, I have about seven books written by him. Uh, and I wouldn't have known about it except through my son, who, you know, graduated Friday night. Yeah. Graduated Friday night, and we're very proud because... We send this Baptist boy to a Presbyterian seminary, and he graduated magna cum laude. So uh, you pray that the Lord will use him uh, in his work. Uh, we, we were over there yesterday, and we spent some time with Larry Thompson, the senior pastor, and I know he has great plans for him. Just want to see him used mightily for the work of God. And my son surprised us because not only did he graduate on Friday, but he got engaged as well. So it was a big day for the Garippas. Our heads were going to explode. Our heads were going to explode. And the other, the other cue for you is when you come to church, you better be prepared to be called up and, and pray. Okay? In other words, if you're going to sit in the first couple of pews... That's a splash area, you know, like, you know, when you go to these water parks, you better watch out because you never know when you can be called on to pray, okay? And if you think I knew I was going to be asked to pray, then you don't know anything, all right? Believe me. So you never know about that. About, about ten, eight or nine years ago, the same thing happened to us the first time, and, and Hayes called me up to pray, and my wife said she thought she was going to have a stroke. In fact, she, was, she said she was so... Her, her head, she developed such a headache that we had to go home after church and she had to lay down for about an hour. <laughs> but I think she's getting used to it now. So she, she said she was okay. But just be prepared. Be prepared when you come to church. You never know what's going to happen. So be, be alert. Um, I wanted to speak to you. I think one of the jobs that a good Bible teacher should uh, do is talk about contemporary events uh, and how they relate to us. And so I'm going to deviate for the first few minutes in our class, and I'm going to talk about what it takes to make the front page of the New York Times. And this was the front page of the New York Times on Friday. Make my bed, but you say the world is ending. In other words, here we have the liberal bastion uh, the New York Times that sets the pace for all of the liberal media, all of the liberal television outlets in the United States, all the other newspapers. It's the New York Times that sets the stage for all of these people. I read the New York Times every day. 
I do it because I think it's important for us to know exactly what they say. We stay on top of these things. But you can bet that the New York Times would never write about a mainline theological issue. They're not interested in discussing the course of Christianity, how God is saving millions of people, how Christianity is moving across continents and changing the lives. No, they're not interested in that. Rather, they're interested if they can find some crackpot, some zealot, some misguided person, somebody who has decided to take the gospel of the Lord and wreck it, erode it, misinterpret it, and that's a guy that they'll gladly put on the front page. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the damage, the damage that people do to our faith and to the gospel. The, the damage. And let me tell you something. If you don't think there's damage, then you haven't talked to people. Believe me, I've spoken to people. And the problem is, is that they lump all Christians into the same tub. That's what they do. They lump all Christians. And so when you see people out there who have a bias against us, who have a bias against the Lord, a bias against the gospel, this is exactly what they love to latch on to. Well, Harold Camping, 200 radio stations across the United States, you know, family radio, terrific a Bible teacher, uh, expositor of the Bible. Really? Really? Well, let me tell you something. Harold Camping... Uh, made a major, major mistake. It's not the first time that he's made the mistake. He's done it before in 1994. He's done it before. And so the one thing that you can guarantee is this. If somebody says, Jesus is coming back on that date, that's a date that you could plan a wedding, <laughs> a good barbecue, a picnic. That's a date you could put down in your calendar at safe. All right? That's safe. That's safe. Nothing, Jesus isn't coming back on that. He might come back the next day, but he's not coming on that date. And say, so anytime a human being pinpoints some specific date and says that I have extracted from the Bible the fact that this is the date, it just blows my mind. The damage that this guy did, the damage. And you look, there's pictures in Times Square and these misguided people walking around with placards. And all I think about are the people, the people who would be brought to the Lord and instead think of, of Christianity as being a, a, a bunch of crackpots. And I want to assure you something. that God doesn't want you to be a crackpot. God doesn't want you to be a zealot. God wants you to be the kind of Christian, man or woman, that draws people to you. That when they see you, the world sees you, they say there's something different about that person. That person has something inside them. I want to have that person as my friend. I want to be near that person. I want that person in my life. That's what the world wants to see, not somebody getting up there and making a fool out of himself and making a fool out of the, out of the gospel. And I want to back it up with a passage that Jesus himself spoke to. Hayes spoke a little bit about it this morning. I said to my wife, I hate when Hayes reads my notes. <laughs> I started at 8, okay, so I think he might be listening in. So at least I, I did do this at 8 o'clock, I want you to know. But it happens, it ha actually, there's a few things that he said today. It's like we, we're sharing the same notes. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24.
And this is something that you need to be able to say to your friends, your family, people that you know who may not be in the faith. When every time they ask this question, what about this? What about Harold Camping? What is this? This is your response. This is the response of the Lord Jesus to this very issue. Verse 36, Matthew 24. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And what is that hour? It's the verse 35 before it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, the angels don't know. Jesus, when he walked on this earth as the Son of Man, didn't know. The only one that knew was God the Father. Now today, Jesus knows. Okay, He's coming to his glory. But as he walked in this earth as the Son of Man, he didn't know. So no one knows the day that he will come back. Verse 37. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So we know the rapture is coming. We know Jesus is coming back. We know that it's going to be a shock. It's going to be a shock to the world. It's not going to be a shock to us because we expect it. We want to be in a state of readiness, but we don't know the day. We don't know the time. We don't know the season. And we besmirch the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world when we do things like this, because then it looks like it's fake. It's fake. And let me tell you something, folks. It's not fake. It's not fake, because he's coming. He's coming. When he says it, you could take it to the bank. One will be kept, one will go out in the field. It's going to be an astonishing day. So uh, I'm, uh, my heart is saddened when I see a man that has a public pulpit, someone that's, that's known as a Christian leader, do something like this, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because you know what? We don't put our faith in men. We don't put our faith in men. We don't give, care about men. We care about God. All right? And the fact that some Christian leader, supposedly, some Christian teacher says this, I always told you that whenever I say something here, you have a check in your spirit. If you don't think it's from God, you go home and pray about it. You read the Bible and you'll get the confirmation that you need. Just because I say something doesn't mean it's so. But when I take something and I give you the Bible verses and you get the confirmation in your heart through the Holy Spirit, well, now that you can take to the bank. And so really and truthfully, I wanted to talk about that because, you know, there are people, somebody sold his life savings. I saw it. Life savings, hundreds of thousands of dollars, went and bought all these billboards. All these billboards. It's all, I mean, it's just so sad. It's so sad. You know, that, that people, misguided people, 
misguided people will, will fall for this. And you know what? Jesus told us. What did he say? They shall believe a lie. If you don't believe the truth, you believe a lie. It's as like simple as that. So let's, let's understand we're dealing with very serious topics here, very serious topics. And so let's go back, and that's why the study of Acts is so relevant. Because you see what we have in Acts? We have every possible issue that we face today in front of us at a time when the church was starting. And in fact, we see the manifestation of evil in a more palpable way than we even see it today. Because it was just walking around. It was just walking around trying to destroy the church. So let's turn to Acts chapter 19, and let's begin at verse 8. And at this point, uh, Paul had been, excuse me, verse 11. At this point, Paul had left the synagogue. He had been teaching in the synagogue. Uh, and as usual with, with Paul, uh, three months is going by. People are being called. People are giving their hearts to the Lord. And then a hardening seems to take place with the Jewish people. And the obstinacy rises up, Satan tempts them, and they reject the gospel as they've done in every single place that he's been. And he now must move out of the synagogue, and he must move into a school, effectively, Tyrannus Hall, where he will, will uh, spend the next several years teaching and spreading and propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, um, in verse 3, in verse 11, rather, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, first of all, this is a transitionary book. Acts, Acts is a transitionary book as we begin the church age. And so what you see here are things that take place there that will never take place really again. And so what happened here is that God, through Paul, was confronting evil. He was confronting the occult. Ephesus was a center for the occult in the world. This temple of Diana was a place where, where pagans from all over the world worship. I told you, it was like two football fields, one long, one wide. Enormous temple, 50-foot-high uh, Greek columns, this statue, part of the statue was from a meteorite. Part of it was from a meteorite. And they had used this thing and they had worshipped it and the whole economy of Ephesus is wrapped around this idolatry and evil is encamped here. And so you know when evil is encamped there, God is going to do extraordinary things to fight evil. And one of the extraordinary things that God did is he took aprons that Paul had worn. And when they had these aprons and they sent them to people who were sick or possessed of evil spirits, they were miraculously healed. Now, don't think that there was miraculous power in the apron. Don't think that there's a prayer cloth that you could get if you found that Paul had that would have some miraculous power because if you start thinking that way, you are sliding down the slippery slope of idolatry. Okay? So when you turn on television and you go on those upper channels that some of you have, you know the ones I'm talking about, and for 1995, 
I can give you this genuine prayer cloth that I have prayed over. Folks, turn that off. Right, that's not biblical. There's nothing biblical about you buying a prayer cloth that somebody touched. God doesn't work like that. You think God's going to allow somebody to make money that way? That is not biblical. So I don't want you to get that way. Yes, Ed? That's how much it costs. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You mean if it's really cheap, it's okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't care if they give it away. I don't want it, okay? I mean, really. And, the point, and so the point of this whole thing is, let's not take an example of what went on in apostolic times and make a broad truth about it. There was a reason why this happened, because God was confronting evil. And when God confronts evil, he needed to have miracles. And the miracles, the purpose of the miracles, were to prove the, gl the glory and the power of our Lord Jesus. Let's understand that. A miracle was not just done because somebody needed a healing. It was a far broader purpose. And, I, and Paul speaks about this himself. And turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 15. Verse 18, Romans chapter 15, verse 18. This is Paul writing. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the, the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elysium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. In other words, God has used the power of miracles and signs. He has used these things to proclaim the gospel. So we need to understand what was the purpose of these miracles. And, and so it's important for you to understand that because at the same time, when you see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, when you see the manifestation of the power of God, you are going to see the manifestation of Satan. You're going to see the imitation by Satan of what happens through the Holy Spirit. And this is typical uh, of, of what goes on here. And so continuing on, let's continue to read this. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, this is a dangerous thing that people are doing. They are attempting to invoke the Holy Spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Simon tried to give Peter money for. Do you remember? Give me some money so that I, I'll give you some money so that when I lay hands on people, I can see them receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Effectively, he said, go to hell. You should go to hell. And he meant it literally. He meant it literally. And so... Uh, 
And so you see people who are not Christians, all right, effectively people who are pagans, effectively trying to use the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see what comes out next in verse 14. Seven sons of Shiva. By the way, this is one of my favorite spots, portions in the Bible. Seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. And I love this. I just love this. Because you know what? Satan knows who Jesus is. You understand? He knows. The demons know. So you can just see this dialogue, can't you? We command you to come out in the name of the God that Paul teaches and in the name of Jesus whom Paul teaches. Well, the, the, Satan, the demon says, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Do you understand what's going on here? This is seven guys against one. Seven guys against one. This isn't one-on-one. -on -one. It's seven against one. And it shows you the power of, of Satan and demons, how powerful they were here. When this demon jumped up, he beat seven guys up. And not only did he beat them, he beat them to the point where they were bleeding. And then, to add insult to injury, he took their clothes off. I mean, this is some scene if you think about it. He takes their clothes off besides giving them a beating and then throws them out into the street. Now, it's an amazing scene. And what you see is how God takes some bad act and turns it into a, a good purpose and an evangelical tool. Because look in verse 17. When this became known... To the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. Well, that's, they're pretty wise. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Do you see how God can take an evil act? How something that looked like it's an evil thing, and God can turn evil into some positive good? And what you're going to see here is it became a great evangelical moment. And this is something I want to tell you. I want to assure you that those of you here, who are suffering from so many different issues. I, my heart breaks because I know in this class there are people suffering from health issues. There are people suffering from family issues. People are suffering from so many different persecutions that they have, whether it's on the job or financial. I want you to know something. That evil that you are suffering for, God has, it, has you in the palm of his hand. He will not abandon you. Not a hair of your head is going to fall. And he's writing the story. And so what you're looking at now, which you can't seem to see the end, how could this be for good? How am I going to find some good out of this? God loves you. He knows where your heart is. He knows you're a child of God. God is not going to abandon you. I mean, you're going to see it time and time again. We see this. And so you see it here. This became some great evangelical event. And thousands of people, thousands of people came forward and gave their heart to God. Uh, and if you read this, it says, Many, many, verse 18, of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. 
read the, read the grammar carefully. Many of those who believed, meaning they had believed already, now came, now they believed, but now they came forward after their belief and openly confessed their evil deeds, meaning they had thought they believed before, but they really weren't participating in what we call heart belief. Maybe they had confessed it with their lips, but they really hadn't fully committed themselves to, the, to their heart, to the Lord Jesus. Well, now they see the manifestation of evil in front of them. And they see what happens where by invoking the name of Jesus through Paul, evil spirits are, are exercised. And yet, when you, when you invoke the same name, but you are not committed to Jesus Christ, the power of Satan in front of you is, is frightening. It's frightening. We're not frightened when we're a Christian. Because God's with us. But you know what, folks? If you're not a Christian, you should be frightened. You should be really frightened. And so you see that, and they saw this, and so now this becomes a seminal evangelical moment. And so what happens next? They confess their evil deeds, meaning they confess the fact that they were involved in the dark arts, that they were involved in the occult, that they were involved in pagan worship. And so what happens next is you see this in verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now this was a big deal because to have a scroll in New Testament time was a very expensive situation. Somebody asked me this morning, what was the big deal about burning scrolls? You didn't go to uh, Amazon.com uh, right, and say, let me have three scrolls. All right. A scroll was a really valuable thing. A scroll was handwritten. A scribe would sit there and copy, copy by hand. A scroll was a very incredible, expensive thing to have somebody duplicate this by hand. Plus, you were buying these scrolls from people that practice the occult arts. And let me tell you something, they don't give it away for free. They wanted money for it and it was expensive. Well, because these people had had an evangelical experience, because they had been uh, uh, really uh, relieved by the Lord of their sin, before, because of this, they now come together and burned their scrolls publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 50,000 drachmas is the equivalent of 150 men working full-time for a year. Wow. 150 men working full-time for a year. Yes, sister? Very expensive. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the process of making a scroll was a very expensive. That's why, you know, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found them in one place, it was a big deal because these things got deteriorated. They didn't last, you know, you couldn't, you know, they didn't last forever. So, just the, the point of preparing them, the point of writing them and duplicating them, it's a, it was a major big deal. And so what happens next? In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, how Satan attempts to imitate. And this is important for us to know. Yes, brother.
Well, uh, I would say that that's a good point. Uh, I would say that we, it, it has engendered a discussion about the rapture. Uh, I, would, I would have much preferred that we have a discussion about the rapture in a proper theological format. Uh, but I'm sure, brother, as you're right, as God has shown time and time again, he takes lemons and creates lemonade, okay? I'm sure God can do the same thing there. I'm sure, hopefully, somebody will say, well, you know what, maybe I better go read my Bible, better. maybe I better speak to Christians, and you know what? You now are empowered, you understand it, we've, we've studied it. If somebody asks you a question, you're going to be able to say, hey, turn to Matthew such and such, right? And you're going to be able to address that very issue. But turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I'm doing this because I want you to get a sense of how Satan operates. Because you're seeing it right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. This is Paul now speaking to the Corinthian church, telling them, giving them a, war a warning about being careful about who comes into the church, about being careful about who they're following, of being careful about the doctrines that they listen to, just like yesterday. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Oh, Lord, this is a pretty powerful verse, isn't it? I mean, you understand what this says? The, you, you know, we walk around thinking of Satan, as Hay said this morning, as having a tail, a pitchfork, right? Uh, some horns in red spandex. You, you know that's what you think. And let me clue you. Satan, when he comes to you, he's not coming like that. Come on, are you kidding? You're good church folk. You're going to BLG. Come on, that, that demon there that you find in a bar or out in the street someplace, that's not the guy he's going to send to you. He's going to send what my father used to refer to as the white glove demon, the sophisticated, educated, civilized. And he speaks here, he will pose as a righteous person. Oh, he's very moral. He will almost, he will appear to be an angel of light. And what I'm saying this to you is this. You need to have the Holy Spirit give you the spiritual perception. Because you see, there were good people that followed Harold Camping. He appeared to be saying all the right things. He studies the gospel. He reads the gospel. He interprets the Bible. And yet he makes this bombastic statement and and. Thousands of people follow along, are deceived, all right, because it appeared to be an angel of righteousness. Folks, you have to get on your knees and ask God to give you spiritual perception. Spiritual perception is a key thing. You need to hear God. When Hayes made the point this morning, you know, to be able to distinguish God 
from evil, from the evil thoughts, to, to understand that. And you see this. And so Paul is telling them how Satan operates. And this is an important lesson for us here. And so, you know, Paul faced it both. He faced both the white-gloved version, all right, which is what we faced, but he also faced it on an even uh, more horrific level. Uh, and what we're going to see next is Satan in his more horrific form. And so continuing on in verse 21, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. That's the first time he has announced publicly that he intends to go to Rome. And the last third of Acts will be about how he gets to Rome. And we're going to study that. I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Well, now what happens next? Thousands of people are coming to the Lord Jesus. The gospel is being propagated. Here we have the center of, of the occult is being dampened, right? People are, people are moving away from pagan idolatry. They're moving to Jesus Christ. Do you think now Satan, who has been defeated, do you think he's going, well, you know what, I think i got to move out, start another place, go someplace else? Come on, folks. It's Satan. He doesn't give up. He's, he's there for the long run. He's there till the end, until Jesus binds him up and puts him into a lake of fire. He's not going anywhere. And so he comes back, but now he comes back in a strong form. Now he's going to come back and he's going to start a riot. And in this riot, the purpose of this riot is basically to try to find a way to silence Paul and hopefully even murder him. Uh, and after all, if I can't get him to shut up, I can get him to shut up if I kill him. And I want you to see what Jesus says about Satan himself. Turn, if you would, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8. In fact, look at verse 43. So now you hear, just as Jesus speaking to the Jews about why they can't hear him, why they can't understand him, and what Satan is all about. Verse 43. This is at John chapter 8, verse 43. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He was a murderer from the beginning. You understand what you're dealing here with? He was a murderer. When he was set loose and he came to earth, he was a murderer. And what he did in the Garden of Eden, he murdered him. It's murder. It's exactly what you see, how he destroyed humanity, how he took, it, he took away what we should have been there in the Garden of Eden forever, and how you see time and time again when he exhibits himself, his fundamental nature is one of a murderer. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Oh, God. You really get a sense of what we're dealing here with Satan when Jesus writes this. When he lies... 
That's his native language. Lying is his regular tongue. He is a liar. That's how he speaks. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin if I am telling the truth? Why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Oh, God. So we have to understand what we're dealing here with in Satan. You are dealing with fundamentally a murderer, a liar, the father of all lies. And so now he's not going to be content. He's not going to be content to see Christianity be advanced in Ephesus. Now he's going to step forward and let's see how he does it. Verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with their workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Let me translate what that says in English. <laughs> Folks! We're going to lose a lot of money. Do <laughs> you have any idea how much money we're going to lose? We're going to be ruined. Everything that we've built, all our money, all our affluence, and it's all about money, isn't it? It's all about money. We're going to lose it all. And now you see one of the great sins of mankind. And it's not, uh, it's not money that is the root of all evil. We read the verse. It's the love of money. You understand? Right? Just because somebody may be affluent, somebody has succeeded in life, God has blessed them, it doesn't mean that the mere accumulation of wealth is a sin. It's the love of money. It's putting money and possessions and affluence before the throne of God. And you want to see it here? These people knew what was going on. They saw the work of God in Ephesus. They saw thousands of people coming on. Were they interested? Oh, no. Everything we've built, our money, was going to be wrecked. And so what you see is how Satan just builds it up. And he, and, he, and he amplifies it. And so in verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And by the way, Paul never said, let's picket those guys. Let's have pickets outside saying, don't buy statues here. You don't see any word of that. He didn't have to do that. He preached the gospel. He didn't tell people now, you know, when you come here, the first thing you have to do is go down there and you have to stop them and you have to do this. There were no do's and don'ts. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, told these people, we're not going there. We're not going to buy these statues. We're not going to do this. We're not going to advance this work. That's what went on. Well, they were so incensed and Satan raised up this, this ire in them. It says, soon the whole city, in verse 29, was in an uproar. How do you think the whole city was in an uproar? Was Satan. The people, 
seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one into the theater. The only reason they got them is they couldn't find Paul. That was who they really wanted, but they took, the, they took his friends. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. You've got to love this guy, don't you? He wanted to appear. Can you imagine? There's 25,000 people screaming, people, for his head. You're ruining us. And he wanted to go before the crowd and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where do you find guys like this? Okay? Where do you find guys like this? You know, some of us, we can't even speak to a friend about the gospel, right? Some of us can't even speak to our family members about the gospel. Some of us can't speak to co-workers about the gospel. This guy's ready to go in front of 25,000 screaming people in a riot to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to see the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? But, but, we have to be wise also. We have to be wise. We don't want to tempt God. And what happens here is that his friends, his associates, told him, don't go. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging, do not venture into the theater. It's interesting, isn't it? So that even people who were officials said, don't go. Don't go. And so he, he didn't go. And so what happened? I want you to see what happened here. The assembly was in confusion. Do you like that? It's Satan. Confusion. They don't even know why they're there. They're screaming. They want blood. In confusion. All inspired by Satan. Some were shouting one thing. Some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Do you see how Satan inspires a riot? They didn't even know why they were there. I mean, this, is how, this is how satanic forces reign. But then look what happens. The Jews, verse 33, pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd instructed, uh, shouted instructions to them. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew... They all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know what's going on here? This is anti-Semitism. The Jews wanted to make it clear, Hey, look, we're not involved with these folks. Just because they wrecked your business, we have nothing against your business. Don't put us with them. And so Alexander, one of the Jews, gets up and tries to make a pitch. And what you see here is you see anti-semitism at its early best oh he's a jew and they really shouted it down for two hours they're screaming at him and so you can get the sense of this whole teeming cacophony coming together here and so uh verse 35 the city clerk quieted the crowd and said men of ephesus doesn't all the world know that the city of ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great artemis and of her image which fell from heaven fell from heaven meaning Part of that statue was a meteorite, okay? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. And here's why he said that. This city was allowed to govern itself. He was an astute man. He knew that if Rome found out that there were riots, Rome would like nothing better than, ex than an excuse to send in a legion of soldiers and squash any attempt by Ephesus to govern itself. And he was very, very careful about that. 
And so he says, therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then anybody has a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. In other words, these people haven't broken any laws. And Luke writes this over and over and over again. And the reason that Luke writes this is to let you know that his belief is that the Romans really, during this period of time in the New Testament church, really did not have an axe to grind against the church. It was the Jews. And Paul and Luke is making this point that the real persecution that's taking place, for the most part, is not being taken place by Rome, it's taking place by, by the Jews. And so whenever Rome has a chance to intervene and convene, pretty much uniformly, they let them go. They find no charge. They say, bring it to court, and it doesn't go to court. And so you see this over and over again. And so we're going to close the lesson at this time as we get through Acts chapter 19. The point of this whole lesson, again, is to see from the early apostolic church what lessons we can, we can have for ourselves today. As we see all these issues day in and day out all over again. You see the influence of Satan, the evil of, of money and affluence, and how it can lead and what Satan does and how he goes around, sometimes like a sophisticated white-gloved demon, and other times the murderer and the destroyer. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you've been here with us today, that you've given us these words. And Lord, this morning I have a special prayer for you because I know that there are people in this group, Lord, who are suffering, suffering greatly for so many issues, God. So many issues, whether it's health or it's financial or it's re relational. God, we put these things before the throne of heaven. Lord, we know that you can intervene, and so we ask for your intervention, God. I have a special burden in my heart for members of this class. And so, God, even though they haven't said anything, they haven't spoken it, Lord, you know. You know through the Spirit what those needs are. And I ask for a touch on these dear people. And now, Lord, I ask for a wall of protection around this class to bring them back again safely next week to continue the study of the Word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. See you next